The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. It's a great pleasure to be here and to have Steve to uh, host us. I also want to thank uh, Margot Landman, Jen Barris, and the National Committee staff for their uh, help in setting this up. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be at the National Committee um, for the very high-level discussions that you have here. I thought I'd start with just giving you a sense for why we did the series of books as we did. Uh, as Steve mentioned, there are three books, one on Central Asia, one on Southeast Asia, and one on Latin America. Uh, and uh, the reason we decided to do that was that the great bulk of the literature on U.S.-China relations is about the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China, uh, and particularly interactions between Washington and Beijing. That's perfectly legitimate. Certainly in the early period uh, of the certainly uh, Nixon-Kissinger era, the strategic relationship was the critical element, uh, and it was primarily bilateral, uh, and uh, it was uh, important to focus on those elements. However, as the economic relationship broadened, as the cultural in uh, interaction broadened, and as more students came here, and as the nature of the interaction between the two countries broadened, um, I began to think that it was important to try to identify what are the patterns that you find uh, in different regions of the world. And so we chose three regions uh, where neither China nor the United States was completely dominant. So the idea was to say, what happens when there is competition between the U.S. and China, uh, but it, it's not necessarily uh, high-level strategic competition, uh, and uh, it is some which is clearly going to vary depending upon the interests that either China or the U.S. has in that region. Uh, so by the end of uh, the presentation, I hope you'll uh, understand uh, why we chose this. Uh, I, I find it compelling because what you'll see is that in each of the regions, the interaction is really quite different. So let me just start with some background uh, on uh, how I divide up the uh, phases of uh, the U.S.-China relationship in the post-cultural revolution period. I would say that the, uh, what I call the strategic era is 1972 uh, to 1991. Uh, this, of course, is the period of the Shanghai communique of diplomatic recognition. Uh, and the focus was clearly uh, on uh, balancing out the Soviet Union. Uh, and it was the, at the end of the Cold War. But uh, for those of you who are uh, my age or close to it, uh, you'll remember that it was not at all clear what the resolution would be. And certainly, very few people predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union in the fashion that it occurred in. And uh, the negotiations between the US and China on strategic issues uh, clearly dominated uh, the interaction in that period. I would call the economic era 1992 to 2006. Uh, the reason I say that, even though, of course, we have even bigger inter <laughs> economic interaction now than we did in 2006. That was the era when China itself acknowledged that uh, its focus was going to be on economics. Uh, just to remind you, China entered the World Trade Organization in 1995. Uh, and then in 2005, here at the National Committee, uh, Bob Zelik, who was then Deputy Secretary of State, gave a very important speech where he talked, uh, and the theme of that speech was called the Responsible Stakeholder Speech where basically he was saying that uh, if China was willing, uh, the U.S. would encourage China to come into the Western 
economic organizations, like it was already a member of the IMF, it was already a member of the World Bank, but play a larger role, uh, and to play a larger role uh, in uh, trade and other investment activities. Uh, I think uh, also uh, all of us are mindful of Deng's admonition to uh, have China hide its strength uh, and bide its time. So in that period, up to 2006, I would say China uh, first focused on its strategic interaction and then uh, economic opportunities. Um, after 2007, however, I would say China began to take a more assertive role. Uh, and so what we'll be talking about now is what happened after 2007 and how that has affected the two states. Um, I think uh, it's important also to note that uh, President Xi Jinping was head of the uh, small working group on the South China Sea. Uh, so uh, there's no question that he played a key role in designing uh, China's policy towards the South China Sea. But what happened in 2006 and 7 was that China began uh, putting pressure on Japan over the Daoyu Senkaku Islands question. Uh, and I think that also led to China taking uh, the very assertive position that they did uh, on the Nine Dash Line and the islands in the South China Sea. Um, more recently, of course, uh, China has also uh, had uh, essentially uh, its future outlined uh, by President Xi uh, in the China Dream speech and in his uh, claim that China will become a global power by the year 2050. All of these are identified with China playing a larger role. Um, during the question and answer period, we can go into this in much greater detail. But if you think about all the organizations that China has sponsored since then, you realize that in a way, China took up Bob Zelik's offer and did play a more active role in the Western institutions, but it also set up ones that it could uh, dominate and control. So think of uh, the uh, decision to go into ASEAN plus one, ASEAN plus three, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, the uh, OBOR, Idai Lu, the East Asian uh, Summit, uh, the BRICS, the New Development Bank, uh, the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and the New Silk Road Fund. I mean, this is an extraordinarily uh, large sort of surge of activity on the international front. So the question is, what enabled that, and what, what's the significance of it? Uh, I think what enabled that, obviously, was first of all a trade surplus. If you didn't have a trade surplus, China would not have had $3 trillion of foreign exchange that it could distribute uh, for uh, aid or loans. Um, secondly, uh, China, because it chose a, an export-oriented strategy, uh, and a manufacturing strategy needed both energy and raw materials. So a country like India has chosen a much more uh, service sector oriented growth strategy, more protectionist, more inward focused. China's is more outward focused, but uh, there's absolutely no question that China needs the raw materials and energy. And that's been the centerpiece of its uh, activities, certainly in Central Asia and Latin America. Uh, the final feature that I think uh, cuts across each of these three regions is what I would call experimentation. And by that, I mean China has been trying to uh, experiment and see what works. I think China has a very sophisticated foreign policy. They don't say the same things in each region. Uh, I don't consider that 
a result of uh, duplicity. I consider that a, an attempt to try to identify uh, what works. Uh, and certainly, the decision to turn towards ASEAN uh, and to take a hard line on the South China Sea, I think, was a result of essentially uh, not succeeding on the uh, Daoyu-Senkaku uh, Islands question. Uh, and of course, China uh, said it wouldn't militarize the atolls and uh, islands that it took over, but it, it has gone ahead and, and um, put military equipment on them. Uh, so uh, each of these things is essentially an incremental attempt at figuring out what works. Um, so let's turn to the three regions and see uh, about some of the patterns that you find there. Uh, first, in Central Asia, uh, the original focus of China's efforts was on oil and gas extraction. Um, not many Americans are familiar with the uh, differentiation of, of the countries in Central Asia, but uh, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan are the two that have the largest uh, energy supplies. Um, the uh, oil and gas uh, is widely available in Kazakhstan, but Turkmenistan is uh, a virtual pool of natural gas. It has the third largest natural gas supplies in the world. And except for the Koreas, uh, I think it, Turkmenistan qualifies as being called a hermit kingdom. Turkmenistan doesn't join uh, cooperation among the Central Asian states. It didn't join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It essentially keeps to itself. But China has been successful at getting uh, deals with Turkmenistan. Uh, and uh, this has been important uh, in China's uh, efforts uh, in the region. Also, uh, China has uh, been very uh, concerned with Islamic radicalism. Uh, this obviously is important for uh, domestic uh, tranquility in Xinjiang province. Uh, and so uh, what's interesting to uh, someone who had no prior experience in Central Asia is that virtually all of the leaders of Central Asia today are either descendants or were trained under the Soviets. Uh, all of them are uh, secular, uh, and none of them want uh, Islamic <coughs> radicalism. So uh, that has been uh, a basis of cooperation between China and the Central Asian states. The other thing which I think is not as well understood is that um, China really does not want Russian influence to grow in Central Asia. Russian influence is important culturally. Uh, many of the elite in Central Asia send their children to university in Russia. Uh, many of them still speak Russian. Uh, but the uh, Russian overall level of capability and influence obviously went down uh, dramatically uh, as it was recovering from the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union. Um, at, and though uh, Russia uh, still has, as we know, nuclear weapons and has the ability to have a very active foreign policy, which of course has been the subject of great debate in this country, um, Russia does not have the ability to compete effectively with China uh, on economic grounds. So uh, at the moment I would say China is leading in that effort. The other thing which is really critical about Central Asia is that China is now using Central Asia as a sort of uh, intermediate stopping off point for its links to Europe, but most importantly to South Asia and the Middle East. Uh, let me just mention some of the new ventures that China is making in South Asia uh, and the Middle East, 
which um, are not only important, uh, but show the importance of Central Asia because of the way that China is setting up the rail and road links. Uh, China has, as you know, very close relations with Pakistan. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor has a commitment for $46 billion of aid and loans. Uh, China is also modernizing the port in Dhaka in Bangladesh. It signed a 50-year lease uh, with uh, the Sri Lankan government for the port of Hambantota uh, on the north of Sri Lanka. Uh, and, uh, of course, China is one of the major customers of both Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran uh, in the Middle East. Uh, the other big news, of course, is that uh, China has set up a base at, at the mouth of the Red Sea in Djibouti. Uh, and right now, literally this week, uh, there are negotiations underway uh, between uh, China and the Afghans. Uh, and there's a possibility of an Afghan base uh, in the far northeast part of Afghanistan. There's a little sort of finger of Afghanistan that goes up, just touches China. Um, and uh, that area is called Badakhshan. And so we'll see if that develops. There's also a possibility that China will be setting up an air base on a peninsula close to Gwadar uh, in Pakistan uh, called Jawani. Uh, if that happens, to me, that's a sign, again, of China's strategic interest in Central Asia. Now, if we turn to Southeast Asia, um, uh, Americans, I think, have uh, plenty of uh, press uh, reporting and access uh, to the debates there. Uh, but if you look at it from the Chinese perspective, what they have wanted is to import low-cost materials, uh, minerals, uh, and energy. Uh, also, because Southeast Asia is a place where lots of parts are manufactured for assembly, and China does the ultimate final assembly, uh, a lot of the links between Southeast Asia and China uh, are over that kind of trade. Uh, another element uh, of China's interests is uh, the question of uh, sort of uh, continuity within ASEAN. Uh, China has very close relations with Burma or Myanmar, has essentially uh, even closer relationships with Laos and Cambodia. Uh, and as we all know, recently China has been courting the Philippines. So China would like to have the countries that are on its border uh, be uh, sympathetic, uh, and it looks like it's succeeded at that so far. Uh, if we turn to Latin America, uh, it gives us a nice contrast. In Southeast Asia, there's no question that there is direct competition between the US and China. In Southeast Asia, um, we have the Seventh Fleet uh, cruising through. Uh, we don't home port in Singapore, but we stop there. Uh, we have sort of, uh, I would say, ambiguous relations with the Philippines at the moment. But again, most Americans probably don't know this, but we have a bilateral security treaty with both the Philippines and Thailand. But Thailand is clearly closer to China than it is to the United States, not only geographically, but politically as well. So in Southeast Asia, you have more direct competition between the U.S. and China, uh, and uh, not the kind of indirect or more subtle competition that you have in Latin America. In Latin America, what I think China has done is to make major investments that uh, strengthen its hand in terms of uh, energy and mineral extraction. Uh, what's important is that um, they have gone country by country to identify countries that want to cooperate. Uh, as you probably know, there's a Chinese businessman who's trying to set up a new canal 
across the isthmus uh, in Nicaragua. Hutchison Wampau, a Hong Kong firm of Li Kai Shings, has the management contract now for the Panama Canal. Uh, China is very heavily involved in aid uh, to uh, Cuba, uh, has extensive deals with Venezuela for their heavy oil, uh, and uh, the largest investments that China has in Latin America are in Brazil. Uh, overall investments in Latin America are over 140 billion, and China has over 110 billion in outstanding loans to Latin America. So uh, they've made a major commitment. Uh, about 60% of that is in uh, energy or minerals, uh, but there's also a great deal in agriculture. Uh, Chinese uh, investment in uh, soybean and wheat development in both Brazil and Argentina is notable. Um, so I would say uh, what the Chinese have done uh, is to go sort of gradually find out which countries they can uh, operate in effectively. Uh, but they clearly are not going to challenge the U.S. strategically in Latin America, uh, whereas there may be a challenge uh, in Southeast Asia depending upon developments. In Central Asia, uh, I would argue that what's likely to happen is that uh, once the U.S. withdraws from Afghanistan, uh, American interests will go down. Uh, because of shale gas, we don't have a real need for the oil uh, and gas in Central Asia, uh, and it's much closer to China, and China has a stronger interest. So if we look at these three regions uh, sort of in summary, we find that in Central Asia, uh, China has a long-term and very critical interest, and it's growing, whereas the U.S. interest is declining. In Southeast Asia, both have a strong interest, and it's not declining. Uh, in Latin America, China is sort of feeling out uh, which countries it can cooperate with and what the effects will be. So with that, why don't I wrap up and go to your questions. David, thank you. I feel like we've been on a whirlwind tour of three continents. Um, and thank you for mentioning that Robert Zellick gave his speech at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I often see <clears throat> the speech cited without citing that it was at a National Committee dinner. In these three regions, would you characterize China's behavior as a responsible stakeholder, as Zelik called on them to be 12 years ago? Well, uh, it's important to remember what Zelik was asking of China. Zelik was asking of China to be a responsible stakeholder in Western institutions. What China has done is to follow a two-pronged strategy, to continue in the, in the Western institutions, like World Bank and IMF, um, as all of you know, uh, Lin Yifu was the chief economist at the World Bank. Um, the Chinese have a much larger role in the IMF than they used to. Um, and they, of course, play a key role in the World Trade Organization. So uh, the Chinese have moved ahead in the direction that Zelik was talking about. But more importantly, they've set up all these other institutions that I mentioned. So the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, the New Development Bank, uh, the Silk Road Fund, uh, all of these are new ventures which China controls. So I would say China has uh, followed part of what Zelik had in mind, but basically set up institutions that it can control as well. So uh, has it been responsible? To, to, the, to those institutions challenge existing world system? Um, or are they actually crafted to be complementary to the system? I think it. We don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, I think they're 
they're not directly challenging because they're just getting started. Uh, we'll have to see over time what happens. Um, it also depends whether China expands its foreign exchange reserves. If the reserves begin to trit down, then China is going to have uh, fewer uh, opportunities to make loans and grants. Uh, for example, uh, in the China-Pakistan economic corridor, for China to commit $46 billion to Pakistan is an extraordinary uh, commitment. Uh, it's at the same time that the American government is saying that they're sick and tired of Pakistan's behavior uh, and are likely to be pulling out. So uh, if, if you see the, the comparison between the two, uh, even the, the uh, uh, farmers in Pakistan uh, can notice the difference. Uh, so now, what will be the long-term effect? How will that affect institutions? Uh, I don't think I can answer. Yeah. <clears throat> Having just paid a visit to AIIB, I think they would take issue with your statement that they are controlled by the Chinese. What they would say is they are a, uh, they have taken the best of the World Bank, they've improved it. The Chinese, it is located in China, but they're quite uh, vehement about saying they are a global financial institution, development institution, not controlled by the Chinese. In fact, there are very specific rules relating to who's going to run it, relating to voting shares, etc. Um, and the seat, there's a seat waiting for the United States to occupy the day that we're ready to do so. Um, this base in Afghanistan, is it in America's interest to see that get built by the Chinese and used by the Chinese? Well, uh, first of all, it depends what the Chinese do there. Uh, first of all, it it's not, hasn't been formally announced. We don't know for sure that it's going ahead. But there's a very strong likelihood that it will. Uh, and so the question is, what do the Chinese do there? Uh, do they cooperate with Westerners uh, while we're still in the country? Or is this base to be set up uh, and to play a key role after the NATO forces depart. At the moment, NATO knows about this, knows about the discussions. Uh, the uh, Chinese uh, foreign ministry invited the uh, Afghan defense minister and the Pakistani defense minister and foreign minister to Beijing over the New Year's period, uh, not the Chinese New Year, but the, the Western New Year period. Uh, and that's when some of the, the high-level discussions were taking place. Um, I think, uh, again, it's not clear uh, what the Chinese will be doing there. Will they be trying to defend their interest in the copper mine in Afghanistan, or, or are they going to be playing a broader security role? I sincerely doubt that they'll play a broader security role in the near future, but they might in the long run. It also depends what happens in Central Asia. If the uh, secular governments in Central Asia uh, are overthrown or changed, and you get Islamic radical governments in Central Asia, uh, then I think uh, that's going to be a much bigger challenge for China. Uh, if you've got secular governments in Central Asia, then the, the flow of goods and economic activity from China, sort of west and then south, into Pakistan can continue. Um, there's no question that the economic corridor is meant to provide uh, a way for Middle East oil and other activities uh, to move through Pakistan up into China and also for China to bring 
manufactured goods down into Pakistan. So all of that, I would say, is positive and responsible. Um, but what, you, you're saying it remains to be seen what the Chinese do with the base, whether it's in America's interest? Yeah, I, I don't think What we could know. they possibly do that wouldn't be in America's interest? Why did we invade Afghanistan? Why did we invade Afghanistan? Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. Uh. <laughs> what we were told was because of the terrorist operations that launched 9-11 were from Afghanistan. And we went to overthrow the Taliban and uh, make sure it's not a base for terrorism. Okay. okay. Is, isn't let, that let, let me ask you a question. After being there and, and overthrowing... The, the Taliban, why do we stay? That, that, that's the more important Because they question. still think it's a, it's a base for terrorism. But my, my point is that the Chinese interest in Afghanistan is totally complementary to the U.S. interest. The Chinese don't want it to be a base for terrorism to be used to support Muslims in Xinjiang I either. I would totally agree with you now. The question is, what happens after the U.S. leaves and, and what, what is going on? Uh, what do the Chinese have in mind? What could, what could they? Well, it's Afghanistan. Let, let, what can let, they do? Let, let, foster let me, terrorism? Let, it ain't gonna happen. Let, let me. I'm. I'm not saying they're gonna foster terrorism, but. Um, but what could the, they do that wouldn't be in our strategic? Well, interest? let me give you an example. Um, obviously, one of the things that some people think is happening in South Asia is that the U.S. is pulling away from Pakistan and and heightening its links to India. Um, at the moment. India has relatively close relations with Afghanistan. It will be very, very hard for Afghanistan to have a Chinese base there and still have close ties with, with India. So uh, what I'm getting at is that we don't know what the long-term strategic implications are. Uh, let me also mention some things in the Middle East. Uh, so far, China has been remarkably skillful at getting along with both Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the U.S. has never uh, been able to do that since the fall of the Shah. Uh, so uh, whether the Chinese can continue that, we don't know. If they can, uh, and the relationship is primarily economic, then uh, that would be in the U.S. interest. If China were to side with one of those two parties, either Saudi Arabia or Iran, um, then that could change the whole constellation of the Middle East. <clears throat> so. The reason I'm being cautious about responding to you is that I don't think we know what's going to happen in Afghanistan. If it, is Afghanistan going to fall apart? Is it going to? The Indians feel a very grave threat uh, if both Pakistan and Afghanistan were to be radical and Islamic. So, uh, and they would probably uh, either intervene or either overtly or covertly. Um, so. Uh, I'm just simply being cautious and saying, at the moment, we don't know what the long-term developments are likely to be. You seem more sanguine about um, Chinese role in Latin America than Secretary Tillerson, who recently visited and, and gave a speech about how you know, countries need to be careful of how, of how they're dealing with China. Why is that? Um, well, I can't um, <clears throat> speak for Secretary Tillerson. Um, I think I'm just telling you what he said. I, I know what he said. <laughs> uh, my feeling is um, that he has not looked at the the problems that China has gotten into. Um, let me suggest a couple of them. Uh, does anyone here think that Cuba 
is a promising uh, area for economic development. It's a, it's a tiny place uh, about the size of a large Chinese city, uh, hardly worth uh, a big investment. Is Venezuela a place where one could expect uh, one to get an adequate return on investment? So if you look at it in an economic light, is the investment that China has made there wise? Um, we also have a, a quite a bit of uncertainty and turmoil uh, in Bolivia. Um, we don't know where Brazil is going. These are all places where China has made a big investment. In the case of the U.S., these investments have been built up over a period of 200 years. In China, they've all come in the last 10 years, in this surge that we've been talking about in terms of new foreign investment. So um, I would say Tillerson is probably uh, being a little histrionic and overemphasizing uh, the challenge that China makes. Also, um, what we don't know is who, who will be the successor governments in Bolivia, who will be the successor governments in Brazil, and certainly uh, there's bound to be some change in Venezuela, uh, and we don't know the directions. If all of these were to turn out to be positive, so that these states were well managed uh, and China could recoup its investments, then I would say the Chinese would be happy. Uh, if, however, they all go south, and at one point it looked like every one of them was, um, then I think the Chinese would look at these investments the same way any foreign power would and say that they have overinvested in the region. So the reason I'm not as concerned as Tillerson is uh, I think uh, there are, is a real possibility that these investments will be um, uh, more headache than benefit. And I, I guess implicitly that the motivation is economic and resource driven, not strategic. Well, in the very long run, if, if Xi Jinping's vision uh, of China being a global power comes to pass, then it's possible that uh, there would be uh, a Chinese naval presence and so on. But it's certainly not likely in the next 10 or 20 years. And, and certainly 10 to 20 years is all anyone can reasonably plan for in terms of strategic competition. Whereas, as to go back to my point, we have strategic competition today in, in Southeast Asia. Um, we don't have it in Central Asia because it, uh, the U.S. goals are limited there. If we were to try to challenge uh, China's role in, let's say, Turkmenistan or Afghanistan, I'm sure the Chinese would respond. Uh, but we're not challenging them. So uh, we're on sort of different uh, wavelengths. These three disparate areas, when you look at them as the books do, what conclusions should we draw for U.S. foreign policy? What does it mean for those who are describing policies for the United States towards China? Well, the first thing that um, impresses me is that Chinese foreign policy is quite sophisticated. Uh, they don't think they need to emphasize the same points in, in different regions. So. In Central Asia, um, uh, they are focusing on things that matter to the Central Asians, which is the Central Asians want export revenue. Uh, they want infrastructure development. Um, they are offering, uh, through the Confucius Institutes and so on, uh, language and cultural interaction. Um, but the Central Asians want to be tighter, uh, more tightly integrated with Europe. <clears throat> they want tighter links with Turkey. Uh, some of the Central Asian languages are Turkic languages, um, and they would definitely want tighter links with, with South Asia 
and the Middle East. So China is providing an opportunity for them. Uh, and as I said, I, I don't think the U.S. is going to contest that because uh, we have other alternatives. Uh, there's no reason to bring oil and gas from halfway around the world uh, when we can get it from Oklahoma and Texas uh, or northeast Pennsylvania even. So um, my sense is that the Chinese uh, will pr pursue those particular interests and not directly challenge the U.S. I can go on asking questions all evening, but let me open the floor to questions, Bill. Yeah, I'm Bill Ironbruster, retired journalist. Two quick questions. First of all, uh, how would you characterize China's relations with Vietnam? And secondly, what realistically do you think are the prospects of this uh, proposed new canal across uh, Nicaragua being built? Um, <clears throat> the Nicaragua Canal is easier to answer. Um, it is <clears throat> an environmental uh, headache uh, and uh, I don't think anyone has solved the, the technical problems that would be necessary to make it a viable uh, enterprise. So I think uh, it's possible that there'll be more uh, research and design studies. Uh, I don't think it's very likely that it will go ahead. But it doesn't mean that it isn't worth exploring. Um, now whether uh, Hutchins and Wampau and Li Kai-shing will be happy about it is a different issue. Um, but. Uh, of course, the biggest ships can't go through the Panama Canal anyway. They are widening the Panama Canal, and there is some effort to get more port access, more links between the ships and the, and the rail uh, crossings across the isthmus. Uh, but I would say the Nicaragua Canal is a long way off, uh, and it, it'll be a long time before uh, the, those issues are resolved. I think the Chinese are very pragmatic. I don't see them making a big investment there until the environmental questions are resolved. Um, Vietnam? Yes, Vietnam. Um, I think uh, Vietnam is the one exception to what I would call the northern tier strategy of China. Um, China has been very successful, as I mentioned, uh, with Burma, Cambodia, and Laos, uh, and certainly with Thailand. Um, the, the Vietnamese, as most Americans remember, uh, are uh, tenaciously independent, uh, and uh, China has uh, handled uh, relations with Vietnam sometimes crudely and sometimes in a sophisticated way. Um, the Vietnamese are basically split. Uh, there are some Vietnamese who very much want close cooperation with China and want to follow the Chinese model. There are other Vietnamese who want uh, more ties with the United States. Um, it's not clear who's going to win out. Um, they've had some leadership difficulties. Uh, they've got major corruption problems. Um, I would say uh, China wants to try to reduce the, the friction that they've had. Uh, and I think China is going back and forth to the Vietnamese saying, look, if we can get along with the Philippines, and now they're courting Brunei, uh, maybe we can get along a little bit better. Uh, so I think that will be the Chinese strategy. Now, the Vietnamese are uh, intensely independent, as mentioned, uh, and this may or may not succeed. Um, it also depends what happens in the rest of uh, Southeast Asia. The Indonesians, uh, of course, have an important uh, Chinese minority. <clears throat> that minority group has gone down uh, since the collapse of the Saharo regime. Uh, 
uh, and its influence has gone down. Um, but Indonesia doesn't want to have any friction with China. Uh, the current president of Indonesia, <clears throat> Jokowi, uh, is stressing that Indonesia is the fulcrum of Southeast Asia, and obviously Indonesia can control the Malacca Strait and controls a lot of the access through that region. I think it's for that reason that China is putting so much effort into the China-Pakistan economic corridor and the, and the pipeline from Burma to Kunming, uh, because they want to have alternatives in case there were some uh, difficulties in the Malacca Strait. Um, so I would say um, in Southeast Asia, uh, China uh, antagonized many of the states uh, with its hardline position on the Nansha or Spratly Islands. Um, but um, the Southeast Asians don't want to be left on their own. Uh, they're very anxious that the U.S. stay, uh, so they're happy to have the Seventh Fleet uh, cruising the area. Uh, as long as it does, uh, to come back to Steve's point, we're going to have strategic competition in Southeast Asia. Uh, to the extent that the U.S. is willing to play in that competition, uh, then uh, we could have the irony of the U.S. making port calls at Da Nang, uh, where we left in 1975. <laughs> Southeast Asians think we're leaving? Uh, some of them do. And certainly, we have an administration that gives mixed signals. And uh, it would be hard to, uh, not to be concerned if you were a Southeast Asian. Strategically or economically, or both? Oh, economically, uh, we'll want to stay. The question is whether um, the US would focus its attention more on Northeast Asia rather than Southeast Asia. Um, it also depends what happens in what's called the Quad. Uh, I didn't mention this, but the Quad is India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Uh, if they become essentially a working uh, entente, um, then that would be an indication of a U.S. commitment to the region. Uh, the, and increasingly in Washington, the term Indo-Pacific region uh, is being used as a term to imply the links across the Indian Ocean into the Pacific Ocean. Under those conditions, if that's important and the U.S. is going to continue with that commitment, then uh, it's likely to have increased competition with China uh, and likely to raise the importance of Indonesia. What do you think the chances of that succeeding? India, Australia, Japan, and the United States? Well, I'm, I know... Some formal alliance or some... I know from some contacts with, with Indians that they're very concerned about the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Uh, also, uh, as you know, the, the Indians refused to participate in the sort of summit that China hosted on the uh, Idai Lu, the One Belt, One Road initiative. So my sense is that <clears throat> it depends how threatened the Indians feel. Um, I don't know why China is making such a big thing over Arunachal Pradesh, over the Daklan Plateau. Uh, these are you remote mean the border area between yeah. India and, and, and Bhutan, uh, China. India, Bhutan, and China. Anyway, my feeling is that uh, if this is one area where uh, China is taking a hard line, my feeling is they could calm the Indians down if they wouldn't take a hard line. So I'm not sure what the what the calculus is, but. Uh, if I were an Indian, I would be very concerned about China's role in Sri Lanka. Hambantota is a wonderful port. Uh, again, this is not something that most Americans focus on, but it's right at the northern tip of Sri Lanka, 
Uh, and if the Chinese uh, are getting access there, uh, of course at the moment they're only talking about commercial access, but in a crisis uh, I'm sure that there would be military access. Uh, under those conditions, uh, India would find uh, the possibility of Chinese uh, military capability in Gwadar on the west and Hambantota on the south and Dhaka on the east. So all of those things have to be unsettling uh, to the Indians. So to get back to your question, um, what are the chances of the Quad working? Uh, I think that Japan and the U.S. definitely want it. The current uh, Australian government is conservative and they want it, but the labor side of the, of the aisle in Australia doesn't want it, and if they were to win the next election, I would say that would reduce the chances of it. Also, um, I would say that uh, Mo Prime Minister Modi in India is a very shrewd operator, and he, what he's doing is focusing on the West. The Indians are setting up uh, a port arrangement in Shah Bihar with the Iranians, uh, and the Indians are trying, as I mentioned earlier, to get closer links with Afghanistan. So if the Indians link up with Iran and Afghanistan, that will be something of a counter to China. Uh, under those conditions, um, then the Quad may not be as important to India. But uh, the, the Indians are now recognizing that they face a, a potential long-term strategic challenge from China. Uh, and it's not just the nuclear challenge, it's conventional. Other questions? Yeah. Ah, go ahead. Um, may I ask a question? David, would you please some Paris, uh, what's your comments after these days uh, that some uh, troubles are uh, made in the you know, Asia area for the over and initiative? <laughs> what which can you lead it to? What kind of situation? Is there any some of some you know, comments for the bankrupt for the over? <laughs> you think so or not? Well, um, I think the, the question is a very good one. The, the dilemma is that China has both strategic and economic objectives in the uh, One Belt, One Road initiative. The economic objectives are clear, uh, to get uh, energy and mineral resources uh, from countries uh, that are on China's perimeter. Uh, and though China is gradually going to move away from its export-oriented strategy, uh, it hasn't been moving that quickly on that. Uh, if you're interested, we can get into that subject. The Rhodium Group has done some very interesting work on that topic. And, and I can comment on it. But the, the real dilemma for the One Belt, One Road initiative is that uh, the dollar volumes are enormous and China is charging relatively high interest rates for the projects. So uh, the poorer the country, um, the bigger the problem. A country like Turkmenistan has a tiny population and immense gas supplies. So they have a lot of maneuverability. So they're not gonna worry too much about the price of, of the communication. What Turkmenistan wants to do is make sure that it's not entirely dependent on Russia, not entirely dependent on China, and he wants to balance it out. So for them, the economic calculus isn't that important. For Pakistan, the economic calculus is very important, and the Pakistanis have just canceled uh, a preliminary um, let letter of agreement on the big uh, dam project, uh, which the Chinese were going to be funding, which I think I think if I am right, they were talking about spending $14 billion alone on that dam. So um, the answer to your question is uh, that 
China has been charging relatively high interest rates. But this produces uh, a lot of long-term uh, sort of balance of payments, uh, potential constraints. Um, I think countries are going to put pressure on China to reduce those interest rates and raise uh, what the aid people call the grant concession element of the project. That's going to make it less attractive to China. Um, but if the strategic element becomes more dominant, then they may be willing to do it. Then it becomes more of an aid program and less of a, of a commercial project. So those are the trade-offs that China is looking at. In terms of the other countries, um, most of them are looking for alternatives, and China gives them an alternative. The Central Asian countries, of course, were actual uh, dependencies of the Soviet Union for a long time. Uh, they're delighted to have somebody else to bargain with. Even if they're bargaining with the Russians, uh, they can now bargain with some strength, which they didn't have before. So I, you have to look country by country uh, to consider the alternatives. Um, in uh, some recent discussions the Chinese have had in Latin America, they've, they've used the term one belt, one road in Latin America. I don't think it really applies. One belt, one road ha has a direct physical sort of analog uh, in Asia. Uh, across uh, the Pacific Ocean, it doesn't seem to be very relevant. Uh, but um, the, the economic and political turmoil in Argentina and Brazil, uh, and possibly even in Bolivia, uh, could endanger the Chinese investments there. So um, I, it's a matter of, will China be forced to lower its interest rates? Will it be forced to uh, make more grant concessions? Uh, will it uh, essentially have to pay a larger price to get the benefits that it wanted to get? Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, I'm Paul Brady with Global Strategic Associates here in New York. Um, and my question is about uh, Chinese popular, sorry, popular opinion in the countries in which you've studied uh, having relationships with, the, uh, with China. Um, and I can speak particularly about Central Asia. Uh, yes. Despite quite a bit of engagement with China uh, on the investment side and at an elite level, uh, China remains, um, in my understanding, quite unpopular as a partner at a uh, general uh, electoral level. Now, very few other countries in Central Asia vote, so it's not necessarily a threat to the elites in those countries, but it is a threat in the long term to their projects and their investments and, and to Chinese security in those countries. Um, and I was wondering if uh, you could speak to how China is waging or winning or failing to win the hearts and minds of the, of the recipient countries of the One Belt One Road or, or other um, Bilateral well, um, I think we as Americans uh, have enough experience with aid projects to know uh, that just because you offer uh, an aid project, which even has a very substantial grant element, doesn't mean that you're going to be liked. Uh, and uh, if you look at what China was trying to do five years ago in Central Asia, I, I would say uh, the overwhelming um, motivating factor uh, was economic. Uh, it was the energy and mineral extraction. Um, now it's broader, and so uh, the issues that you raise become more important. So this, the salience of getting public support goes up. Um, the problem in Central Asia is that, as I mentioned, the elites uh, are Russian language speaking. Uh, there's often a fair amount of intermarriage with Russians, and there are 
large Russian uh, domestic populations. Um, there are relatively smaller uh, Chinese populations. In Kyrgyzstan, for example, there are a fair number of Chinese who are resident there. Um, there are not that many Chinese resident in other parts of Central Asia. Um, I think um, the question is, how do they manage these projects? If the projects are managed well uh, and the, uh, the public sees that they benefit from it, I think that China's image is likely to improve. Uh, if the projects are not managed well and the public feels that uh, they have been exploited, there's going to be the same resentment that, that the U.S. has faced in many of the places where we have aid programs. So um, I, I think uh, one would need to be cautious about making a generalization. I, I, I think it also depends upon the country. <clears throat> Tajikistan is the poorest country of the region. Uh, the Tajiks are also completely focused on Afghanistan. As you may know, in northern Afghanistan, the Tajiks are very strong. Uh, so um, there is even talk that if Afghanistan were to fall apart, that the Tajiks who are in Afghanistan would move north and there would be that kind of instability. Also, the question is, what, if they move north, you know, uh, what would they be bringing? Would they be bringing the Taliban, radical Islam, and so on? Um, as I mentioned, uh, China is very concerned about radical Islam. Um, as long as there are secular governments there, they're going to be calm. Uh, if there is a radical Islamic government in any of the five Central Asian states, it's going to be a problem. There is a big Islamic insurgency movement in Uzbekistan, uh, and the, the governments I would call relatively fragile. So uh, I agree with you that public opinion is important, uh, but if I were trying to bet on what will shape the outcomes, I would say elite politics uh, and the success or failure of uh, Islamic challenges what will be more important. Um, it also depends what happens in Xinjiang. Uh, if China is successful uh, with de development projects in Xinjiang and, and the Islamic movements there are uh, sort of less virulent, less violent, uh, that will have some effect on Central Asia. If things get worse in Xinjiang, that will create more friction in Central Asia. So I'm sorry to complicate y your analysis, but uh, I, I don't think there, there's a simple direct line between public opinion and the outcomes. And what? Yes. Jan Barris with the National Committee. <coughs> you were couching your answer to Paul's question as an aid recipient kind of thing and what yes. the politics were within the country. Um, China is now around the world and in many countries seen as having both soft power and what's now called sharp power. And has China been exercising, or, or what's the relative projection of China's soft versus sharp power? I know each country is in, individually might be different, but in these three regions, is there a difference in the way they're projecting that? It's a very interesting question. Thanks for raising it, Jane. Um, in Central Asia, as was just mentioned, um, the um, Elite and better educated groups uh, don't have much contact with China. Uh, there are Confucius Institutes there. There's some Chinese language training. Uh, and people who are looking 
toward the future uh, among students who are, let's say, in college or graduate school, uh, I think may want to master uh, Mandarin uh, and have closer ties with China. But the, their parents and their grandparents uh, have predominantly links to Russia. Um, so I would say China's soft power um, is uh, only uh, of limited um, influence at the moment and even has limited potential in the future. In Southeast Asia, it's totally different because in Southeast Asia, you have the Wachao, the overseas Chinese communities in each country. Um, for example, in Thailand, uh, the top um, uh, people in the financial community are all Chinese. Uh, Bangkok Bank is owned by a Chinese family. Um, in in uh, the Philippines, most Americans don't realize this. I, I, I was amused, for example, when uh, Cory Aquino was president. Time magazine wrote these flowing things, didn't point out that her family, w w the Kawankos, is Ku, Wang, and Ko. They're a Chinese family. Uh, and just for those of you who don't know the Philippines, it takes about half an hour to drive past the Kowanko uh, state. <laughs> so uh, these are not poor people. Uh, so uh, you have to look country by country, as you're hinting, uh, at the, the likely influence. But uh, in Vietnam, I would say being Chinese is a negative. In, in Thailand, it's a positive. In, in Malaysia, uh, it's a positive if you want to do business. Uh, it's not a positive if you want to do politics. Um, Singapore has this curious relationship where for a long time they thought they were going to be tutoring the Chinese, and they finally figured out that the Chinese didn't feel they needed tutoring. Um, but um, Singapore is a remarkably successful and vital place, um, and um, there's no question that China has um, influence there, uh, but uh, the Singaporeans have their own view of what they want to develop and, and the w direction they want to go. Uh, in Indonesia, um, the Chinese community was absolutely vital in maintaining the economic and political strength of the Suharto regime. So since Suharto, the Chinese influence in Indonesia has gone down. So. I would say you need to look across each of these uh, areas and uh, look at the differentiation among them. In Latin America, there are no Chinese communities that are large enough to sort of have a, a key uh, influence on the political outcome of the country. But um, China is an alternative source of investment, capital, and um, certainly trade. And uh, China is now the largest trading partner for many countries in Latin America, particularly on the West Coast, uh, for Bolivia, Peru, uh, even Chile, they're important. So uh, at the moment, I would say um, the Latins are relatively positive towards China um, because they're a new trading partner and they're way over the horizon. Whereas in Southeast Asia, it depends whether you think the Chinese are going to be a problem for you or going to help you. Yes. Marco Landman with the National Committee. We've seen recently some very harsh rhetoric, perhaps is the word, from Washington about China in the national security uh, 
strategy and the military strategy. Should the U.S. be worried about what China is doing militarily or security-wise in these regions that you have analyzed? Well, uh, in the podcast, uh, Steve and I discussed this in more detail, uh, but let me just give you a brief answer. Um, in Southeast Asia, there is direct strategic competition between China and the U.S. We have the Seventh Fleet there. Um, if China were to um, take over other uh, atolls or islands in the South China Sea, um, it would be uh, a direct challenge. Uh, the, the whole issue of Scarborough Reef is, is a key concern. Um, there are, there's, you may know Natuna Island, which the Indonesians own. The question is, how does China operate in that region? Uh, if China uh, stays put on the atolls that it has now, uh, doesn't expand its military profile, uh, I think the U.S. is not likely to have uh, you know, immediate friction with China. If, however, China were to expand, then we would be forced to respond. Uh, and the Obama administration sort of waffled uh, for a long time over the South China Sea issues, and it gave China the opportunity to go ahead with what they wanted. So I would say uh, that it is legitimate for the national security strategy to mention U.S.-Chinese competition in Southeast Asia. In, in Central Asia, as I've said several times, uh, we don't have a, a long-term interest. So uh, I don't see the, the competition being a threat. In, in Latin America, it depends what the Chinese do. If the Chinese build a canal across Nicaragua, if they continue to dominate um, uh, the, the access to the Panama Canal, um, if things turn around in Venezuela, uh, and the Chinese are beginning to have a higher profile role, uh, and then one day, uh, parts of the Chinese fleet show up in Latin America, then you'd have competition. So my feeling is, at the moment, we don't have strategic competition in Latin America. But I, I wouldn't rule it out. I think it's a possibility. Uh, what I, I'm trying to argue from in this book is that what people don't realize how big an investment China has made. Uh, China has made an economic investment. Uh, they've made some diplomatic investment. But it's not a strategic investment. They do have a strategic investment in Southeast Asia. So um, again, I haven't seen the exact wording in the national security strategy, but um, my guess is they haven't made the kind of differentiations that I would appreciate. And to come back to one of my original points, um, what is sophisticated about Chinese foreign policy is that they design a policy for the region where it's relevant, and then they stick to it. Uh, unfortunately, in the US case, uh, we seem to be vacillating uh, and sending mixed signals. David, <clears throat> thank you for your frankness today. It's really much appreciated. And thank you for coming here with your, your back the way it is. Well. <laughs> the, uh, but really, these books, are, it's, it's, um, it's heavy, but it's worth it. <laughs> but uh, thank you.